Welcome to the IGC's first online event, Global Leadership to Support Africa's Response to COVID-19. We're delighted that this webinar will inaugurate the LSE's series of online events on COVID-19. I'm Jonathan Leap, I'm the Executive Director at the IGC, and I will moderate today's session. Before we get started, let me review a few housekeeping items. All attendees have been muted to minimize the background noise. We're going to have a designated time at the end of the panel discussion to answer questions, so please type your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens, and make sure to include your full name and your affiliation. We are recording today's session, and a video and audio recording will be made available on the LSCs and the IGCs websites. I'd also like to point out that there'll be a brief survey following uh, today's presentation, so please take a minute to fill that out later on as your feedback is very important to us. And feel free to contribute to the conversation online using hash LSCOVID19. It's now my great pleasure to uh, hand over to the director of the LSE, Manu Shafiq. Thank you, Jonathan. I just wanted to say three things. Uh, first, welcome to all of you. We, uh, some of you may know the LSC runs what I think is the best public events program in the world where we bring people from all over the world to speak to people in London, all open to the public. And in the last few weeks, like everyone, we've had to move that online, but have been incredibly impressed at the huge demand for high quality intellectual debate at this time. So welcome to all of you to that. Second, I wanted to just uh, highlight some of the work that we're doing at the LSE in response to the COVID crisis. If you go online and type in LSE COVID response, you will find a wealth of material on work being done at the LSE in response, ranging from something that was published this week, which looks at the costs and benefits of lockdown from a, from a well-being perspective and concludes that, say, in the UK's case, lockdown should end on June 1st, because at that point, the benefits uh, are less than the costs. We've also had some fantastic work by LSE's anthropologists who've done field work online, uh, looking at what a good death means in the current environment and how governments can help different faith communities achieve a good death in the context of a world of lockdown. And finally, we orchestrated a letter to G20 leaders, which was signed by 200 world leaders, calling for a better global response to this crisis. Which brings me to my final point. Uh, you cannot solve a global pandemic with national policies. One of the impacts of this virus is that all of us are looking more inward. We don't see as many people. We're all becoming a bit more self-reliant. And yet at the same time, the paradox is, is that we are more dependent than ever on each other to defeat this crisis. And that same paradox applies to the world economy and to the global health challenges we face. Nation states are all turning inward and throwing unprecedented resources at the national level to fighting the pandemic. But the pandemic doesn't respect borders and even if one country defeats it, the risks of it returning are very high as it continues to plague the rest of the world. The world is still interconnected, just in different ways. And I think that's a key message for today's session uh, in Africa, where clearly the potential impacts are huge and we will not be able to address them unless, unless it is collectively done. 
And so with that, I will pass it back to Jonathan. Thanks very much, uh, Manoush. COVID-19 is a public health crisis without precedent in living memory. And it is, as Manoush said, testing our collective ca capacity to respond. The most urgent priority is to minimize the loss of life. But the pandemic has also triggered an unprecedented economic crisis. Developed countries in particular have been, have been subject to a massive external shock as a result of the sharp and simultaneous drops in natural resource prices, in remittances, in tourism, and in trade. Lockdowns and other measures that have been put in place domestically to contain the outbreak have deepened the crisis, leading to mass unemployment and a collapse in incomes. Economic, social, and health effects are devastating, particularly in poorer countries that lack the fiscal and institutional capacity to support vulnerable households. A UNDP study suggests that income losses in developing countries could exceed $220 billion. And the World Food Program warns that 265 million people could be pushed into acute food insecurity by COVID-19. Developing countries face two great challenges. The first of these is how to shape the domestic policy response against a background of considerable uncertainty and urgency. And with only limited data and enormous technical and political challenges. What measures should be adopted to fight the epidemic in contexts radically different from those in the advanced economies, contexts where high density informal settlements are an important factor and there are limited options often for social protection. The IGC has convened an advisory group of international experts in economics, development, and health to focus on these issues. And we are today releasing a guidance note on these domestic policy challenges, focusing particularly on containment strategies and support for vulnerable households. The note argues that the COVID response in each country must be driven by local knowledge and local evidence and it must take into account a wide range of public health and economic policy instruments. Our aim in this note is to create space for developing countries to craft distinctive solutions that will be effective in their context in protecting lives and protecting livelihoods. As IGC, our overwhelming focus in this period is on supporting policymakers in developing countries to, de to develop effective policy responses and we're doing this in three ways. We're working together in an international collaboration that we've put together to increase the data available to policymakers in their countries and in real time. And that includes both data on health and the transmission and infection rates, but also on the economic impact so that policymakers have the data they need to be crafting their responses. We're also uh, working with policymakers to supply insights from research and to generate new research on what's working and what's not working. Also looking forward to the eventual recovery from COVID and the transition to what will clearly be a new normal after COVID. The COVID-19 guidance note is available on the IGC website under COVID-19. The second big challenge developing countries face is the fiscal challenge. 
how can these countries raise the resources they need to meet the challenge of COVID-19? As Larry Summers said in an IGC seminar last week, there is currently an enormous disconnect between the scale of the response in advanced economies, which have adopted a whatever it takes approach, and the timidity to date of the international response to the crisis in developing countries, which face not only, as I said, the internal challenges, but this combination of external shocks as well. Only a combined international effort will meet this challenge. And that is the urgent focus of our seminar today. We're delighted and honored to have three people who are helping to lead this effort internationally. I'll be putting a question or two to each of them at the beginning and then having a panel discussion before we then move on in the last part to a general discussion and your questions and answers. And as I said, if you do want to ask a question, please use that Q&A box at the bottom of the screen. I'd like to welcome our three uh, panelists uh, here who you haven't yet uh, met. The first uh, is President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of Liberia, who I'm pleased to say is also the co-chair of IGC's uh, recently established Council on State Virginity. Our next guest is Dr. Ngozi Okonjuwela. Uh, she is the former finance minister of Nigeria and is currently the chair of GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccines, and also a senior advisor, I'm pleased to say, of the IGC. And finally, I'll be turning to Paul Collier, who is a director of the IGC and a professor of economics at the Bobotnik School of Government at Oxford University. Let me begin with President uh, Sirleaf. I'd like to ask uh, you uh, about uh, your experience coming out of uh, your 12 years as president uh, of Liberia, and in particular, the period, a period which included the 2014 to 16 Ebola outbreak. What are the key lessons from the fight against Ebola that can help Liberia, but also other developing countries to tackle the COVID-19 crisis? Let me mention a few uh, key things that are required. Uh, they won't necessarily be sequential or totally complete. First of all, we need an engaged and exemplary leadership at all levels, political leadership, technical leadership, to be able to guide the action that will be taken uh, to fight the virus. And that means it provides also an opportunity with full engagement for everyone to have a means for, for a coordinated response at all levels in the country. We also need reliable and if possible, informed data and information. If we don't have that, then we don't know how to develop the responses, whatever action can be taken to ensure that we get the desired result 
and the effect that we want. And that's very difficult in some of our countries to say you have really and truly reliable information or informed. Uh, one can look to other sources to enhance the quality of your data and information, but certainly one has to see that as an important uh, contributing force to fighting uh, the virus. Um, we always have trouble with confidence when you have a virus of this nature or disease of this nature, anything that's an epidemic or pandemic. Uh, and unless you can have, you know, honest, regular reporting to the public with as best of the information as can be made available and regularly letting them know, like I say, honestly, what the situation is so they know how to accept the situation they are in. And also, it brings about compliance. If they don't believe what the government says through proper reporting, and, and if there is no confidence in that reporting, then we get what we face in Ebola. Lack of confidence, resistance to, to compliance, uh, being able to attack those who are trying uh, to provide uh, help. In all cases, for poor countries, certainly for a fragile country like Liberia, uh, capacity enhancement. In the midst of this kind of a crisis, it's difficult to talk about full training. But I think the lesson we have is that once the, once the epidemic has ended, one must be able to put much more into improving and enhancing national capacity. The abilities of leader, uh, the ability of health authorities, those who are the policy makers at all levels in rural areas where most times the effect is most critical because of the lack of health facilities unless one can find a way to be able to enhance that capacity. And I know in our case, we found how very, very useful community health workers were. Many of them were not so trained. Many of them did not have any level of income uh, that was sustainable for them. But they were engaged, they were supported to a small extent, and they were sent out there to be first responders. And, and I'm so happy that after it was all over, uh, we had uh, Paul Farmer and others that joined together to say, we are going to train community health workers to enable them to perform, to enable them to be more effective first responders. And we found that the effect of that uh, is that today, they also make a big difference in identifying uh, those, those uh, with malaria, another infectious disease for which Liberia is plagued. Uh, and so that has proved to be so much instrumental. 
Uh, then, of course, we need partnerships. We can't do it alone. We're a poor country. Um, and that partnership has to be by, by bilateral. Uh, most of our, our donor countries, our partnership countries, uh, usually give us support uh, through some of their institutions and their, in, and their entities that have the, the proper technical capacity, that have the means to be able to do so. Uh, multilateral support, World Bank, IMF, our own African Development Bank, and others uh, certainly come in and they, and they gave support for that. And, and let me say one of the lessons from, again, from Ebola is how supportive and how effective in response we got from the Global Fund and from Gabby. Ngozi, I just need to say thank you. Uh, thank because, you, Excellency. <laughs> no, because there was Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo many, many years ago, before Liberia, there was no vaccine. The development of vaccines started with Ebola in West African countries. I mean, today, DRC can boast that, I mean, we couldn't do many trials because we were in the midst of the, you know, uh, of the epidemic and you couldn't try it on those that had already been affected. Uh, but post West Africa, uh, the momentum in the research, you know, and finding the means to be able to find a vaccine. Uh, now we do have one that has proven to be effective uh, in controlling. And I think much more work is being done on that. And COVID-19, they have a head start perhaps that uh, we didn't have the benefit of. So now Gavi and others, can build upon what happened uh, in the previous uh, uh, crisis and, and then improve upon that. And today we now find a way that we can be able to attack any disease just right before it even gets stuck. In other words, we can try to prevent it. Prevention is the most formidable means anyway of trying to, to do that. So I, I think those were some of the main, uh, the main, uh, uh, things that came out of our uh, Ebola experience, like I say, they're not necessarily complete. Uh, so many other things about, uh, you know, being able to, to improve communication, being able to have uh, coordinating, uh, if coordinating uh, systems whereby we were not all from different, different types of uh, examples, suggestions, advice coming from different sources were not confusing us more than helping us. So those coordinated meetings, again, handled by proper leadership to be able to guide uh, the discussions and the arrangements and the exchange of information and the final, the formulation of decisions, you know, to be able to act accordingly. I think those are some of the examples I would say. Great. Well, thanks very much. Just wonder if I could ask a quick uh, question before we move on to uh, the, about six years ago, um, Paul, uh, made an appeal to the global community for support in, in uniting forces against Ebola. And recently you've done so again for the coronavirus. And I wonder if you could just highlight one or two things that you think will be critical in terms of mobilizing the international support that's needed. I think one has to get a response from a key leader of the world. 
uh, in our particular case, um, I appealed to, to President Barack Obama and he was responsive. He was responsive in ensuring that CDC, that NIH and other US support. So being able to have a key leader uh, that actually shows leadership uh, to be able to bring others together, others of the partnership community uh, to be able uh, to respond, I think is, is one of the things that we're able to do. Uh, being able to uh, stroke the conscience of, of world leaders. And sometimes you have to use some non-conventional way. I remember Bono was able to, to do a lot through song and, and using you know, cultural tools to be able uh, to bring upon people's awareness, the intensity of this disease. And the fact that it was not just localized, that in fact it was a global threat. And if that response did not come globally, you could expect that everybody would be affected globally. Uh, I think those are some of the things that uh, we were able to, to use to be able to get the kind of support. Did we actually get the, the, the kind of support required? Yes, we defeated Ebola. Almost 4,800 people had died in West Africa. Um, no, in Liberia, 11,000 or so in West Africa. Um, our African countries, I think, being, getting partnership in Africa from Africa itself is so essential and it brings a lot of confidence to the population. We were able to get uh, through our business sector, some of our key corporate uh, uh, entities that uh, provided funding to the African Union to support young Africans uh, coming and joining our young citizens here uh, to be able to, to fight Ebola. All of, that's a combination of all of those, I think, uh, that enable us to get the success that we did. Great. Thank you very much, uh, President Sirleaf. Let me turn now uh, to you, Dr. Ngozi Konjuwela. Uh, you've recently been appointed, among other things, uh, a special envoy of the African Union uh, and really charged with you know, coordinating and enlisting this international response. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us, in the first instance, what you think the targets for that assistance should be. You know, we, Africa is in, in, in the midst of both the health and an economic crisis. And, and I wonder if you could say something about what the targets of that assistance could most usefully be. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Jonathan. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I just would like to follow on on what Her Excellency President Johnson Sirleaf has also said. Um, in in this crisis, this pandemic, um, you know, Ebola showed us how dangerous these kinds of things could be if they spread all over the world, and COVID nineteen has really shown us that no one is safe. I think Menush said it at the beginning, no one is safe until we're all safe. So what, what has transpired is that, you know, you've seen the vulnerability of the health systems of the entire world. It's been very interesting to see that even in the developed countries, there, ha there has been this difficulty of or the seeming, seeming overwhelmed of the systems, the difficulty to get the supplies, the test kits, the PPEs in country after developed country. And that has been quite interesting for everyone to see. So imagine if you have the health systems 
of the developed countries overwhelmed. What is happening with the developing countries that are originally not as strong? So this has been the immediate concern, the immediate target, if you will, of the policymakers and the immediate charge to us as Africa uh, AU envoys is how do we mobilize resources to help uh, first get the equipment and supplies that are needed and then you know, eventually to help shore up, shore up um, our health systems and make them stronger. I'll say one, one important thing that happened during the Ebola crisis is that uh, we, we did develop some capabilities as Her Excellency said. Uh, our health systems are now able to have you know, contact tracing uh, when you, you, you have this kind of epidemic and you have to find out who was it and who did they have contact with, how do we eventually get those people? Uh, so many of our countries now have that capability. And in fact, in Nigeria, we had it when Ebola happened. That was what we, we used the system we built up for polio to help with Ebola tracing. And that limited the number of um, people you know, who, who contacts as well as the number of deaths considerably. So our target is in the short term, how do we get resources? And there are estimates of what we need uh, in the short term for these kinds of equipment and supplies, all the way from 350 immediately, uh, 350 million to a billion to be able to, to take care of, of these supplies. Um, we've had now a lot of donations from some countries in kind, uh, but there's still the necessity to mobilize the cash. Um, the international community in terms of the multilateral development banks and some bilaterals have, have given some support. Uh, Gavi itself, my organization has about $200 million released, the global fund, you know, has about 500 million. The World Bank um, has released about 265 million. Uh, and the fund has done both emergency health, but also emergency economic support. And they are targeting to release about 11 billion. Um, let me end this segment by saying that, you know, the estimate uh, that the African Union has made of what the African countries need uh, to, to overcome this crisis on the health and economic front in, in, in both the short and longer term is about $200 billion. And that should not surprise anyone. That's about 10% of our GDP. And uh, it's not very far from what the developed countries have been um, putting forward for their own, um, you know, their own um, programs and their own revival of the economy and health systems. Thanks very much, Ngozi. I wonder if we could turn now to something which you're very much at the center of, and that's the role of uh, ultimately of a vaccine uh, for the coronavirus. And I wonder whether you could say something about uh, how once a vaccine is available, we can avoid the inequitable distribution of that vaccine. Uh, which you know, there seem so many forces that are pushing us in that direction uh, and ensure that all countries and particularly uh, countries in Africa can benefit from it. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I think this very issue 
was the subject of the recent launch of an international initiative by the WHO and by uh, many, many leaders around the world. Um, I think Friday last week, uh, an international initiative to accelerate the development of vaccines, uh, therapeutics, and diagnostics, and make them available, uh, especially to the whole world, but especially the developing world, um, was launched by, by WHO and, and all these leaders, Chancellor Merkel, President Macron, and others were there. And the whole idea is, is this. We've had experiences in the past globally where um, a vaccine was discovered for an illness, but was not produced in sufficient volume or at an affordable price uh, for, for people in developing countries. And they had to wait in line, meaning that you know, there were deaths happening in these countries when we actually had the solution. Uh, uh, for, for, for that disease. H1N1 is, is one example where there wasn't enough available. So the idea of the international community is to say this must not happen. Right from the start, we have to design into the way that these vaccines are developed, produced, uh, criteria and a system that would make them, you know, suf av uh, available in sufficient volume and at an affordable price to assure equitable access to everyone. So that's this new accelerator um, um, program that has been launched under the aegis of WHO, which uh, I'm also an, an envoy. And there are three um, streams, work streams. There's the vaccines work stream, the, the therapeutics work stream, and, and then the diagnostics. And the reason the three work streams are there is that vaccines take some time uh, to, to, to produce. There's every, if it's done within the 12 to 18 months that everyone is trying, talking about, now it would be a miracle. That has never been done. And we must always have at the back of our mind the possibility that there may not be actually a suitable vaccine at the end. Although there's every hope, people feel like 60% there will you know, there will be one. But for that reason, supporting therapeutics and also is, is very important. And then diagnostics, of course, uh, of all types uh, that we can use to, to be able to say who has the disease and, and you know, et cetera. Those are important. So those are the, the three strands. Let me end by saying the whole concept is vaccines as a global public good. What the world is dealing with now is a global public bad. So it must be treated as a global public good, meaning that we are very concerned that whoever finds it should not stick to their intellectual property, but should be able to let that be available so that this vaccine can be manufactured in huge doses. Secondly, you still need some incentive systems in order to persuade the manufacturers and the developers to go to work. They must cover their costs. So uh, that's why it's important to mobilize resources internationally to support this work and to have in place mechanisms like the advanced market commitment or the advanced purchase mechanism, which Gavi has, to say to these manufacturers, we will commit 
so much volume that will make sure you recover your costs. Or we'll even, you know, sort of purchase in advance whatever will work in order to make this available in an equitable fashion to the whole world. So that's the, that's the project we're embarked on now. Right. Thanks very much, Ngozi. Let me turn now to Paul Collier. Uh, Paul, you've um, mentioned um, in a recent article about how African governments have rushed to emulate Europe, despite the fact that, as I was mentioning earlier, the economic and uh, other social uh, cultural circumstances are so are so different. And that, of course, also that their fiscal space to respond is now so severely limited as a result of the external pressures that they're facing. And the problem, of course, of the limited social protection uh, in the poorest uh, economies, and especially for those, those at the bottom, and compounded by the important role of the informal sector and the lack of institutions and so forth to connect uh, and to provide direct support. So I wonder if you could uh, tell us uh, what uh, you think first should be priorities for countries in developing their domestic COVID response and whether there are other, there are sort of solutions, perhaps, um, you know, things, new ways of thinking about social protection and so forth uh, that we might be able to bring to this problem. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jonathan. I think, first of all, um, there's no good emulating Europe because Europe doesn't know. Um, and the honest truth is nobody knows. Um, this new disease is an example of, of radical uncertainty. Um, uh, that is, there's no model which knows. Um, there's a number of models which claim to know. They all disagree with each other. Um, and the, the fundamental problem is we just don't have enough information to make a model in any way reliable yet. It'll be a long time before we do, I suspect. <laughs> so <coughs> one message from radical uncertainty is since you don't know, uh, don't do things that um, really uh, are, are sort of rash, depend upon knowledge you haven't got. Um, and the, the second implication of radical uncertainty is try and find out, you know, and, and, and Gozi's just done a very good job of, you know, you've got to find out about a vaccine, you've got to find out about uh, therapeutics and so on. So um, putting effort into that. Um, um, and then let me turn to, to the fact that Africa really is very different uh, from, from Europe. Um, and one of the respects in which it's different is the sheer history. And it, it's, it's really, it's been fascinating. There are, the same disease is playing out very differently in three different regions. And it's because each of these three regions is using a reference disease, which is different. And um, uh, the disease started in East Asia. What did East Asia use as a reference model? SARS. Uh, and SARS was pretty dangerous. And so fortunately, East Asia took it seriously, didn't do a bad job at all, right? Um, West Africa um, has as its reference point, as you've just heard from President Johnson Sirleaf and Ngozi Okonjo Awiala, they both started by referring to Ebola. And my goodness, having had Ebola, first of all, you've learned a lot. That, Af that, that Africa now knows and that Europe doesn't know. And secondly, you take this disease really seriously. And so after a, a, a few moments of imitating Europe, um, Africa very rapidly 
uh, learned that it knew it, it should trust itself, not trust what Europe didn't know. And I, I was terribly struck, and I'm sure our audience were, um, and Alan and Gozi, you can't comment on this, but frankly, you both spoke so much more um, intelligently and well-informed than um, any number of Western leaders that I can think of. Um, it was, you both did a superb job based on a lot of thought, a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. And um, that is a very distinctive mode of leadership, I think, that Africa's got. Um, what is Europe and North America basing it on? What's the reference narrative for a disease? Spanish flu. And so it thought, oh, this is just another flu. And that's why the first instinct was to talk about herd immunity and, oh, this doesn't matter, it's just a sniffle, you know. And, um, so the three reference narratives are so different. That's, that's before we start on the, the more important structural differences between Africa uh, and Europe and North America and East Asia for that matter. Um, uh, Africa starts with a very much more substantial disease vector and so in health terms, people have, there's an awful lot more disease around. Um, and secondly, you start off with a uh, much poorer society. And so there are a lot of people um, on the economic precipice um, before this starts. Then what's distinctive about Africa is, in my own opinion, maybe wrong, but in my own opinion, the biggest hit to Africa is not COVID, it's the economic hit that's coming from the collapse of Western economies. And that has been transmitted with very big adverse income shocks um, through falling commodity prices, uh, falling remittances, um, incipient flight of capital, um, reductions in tourism, you know, you name it, these are big, big adverse economic shocks. Um, and so uh, Africa's biggest problem is coping with the economic collapse in the advanced economies. And as you both suggested, it is actually pretty shaming that having caused your problem, um, uh, the, the rich economies haven't done much um, to enough to put it right and um, because what Africa most needs is an income injection to compensate for the very big income loss um, and there's a danger that with this big coordinated income loss we will see recession as fall in incomes for some people leads to fall in demand which leads to fall in incomes to other people and we get the on top of everything else, we get a sort of Keynesian type uh, economic spiral down. That's why um, it's very important at the moment governments go into deficit. And to go into deficit, uh, they actually need some financial support from, uh, from, the, from both bilaterals and the international community. So that's really important. And I think the, the final thing I'll say before um, handling back, actually, since I haven't got much time, let me commend 
the IGC note, which has just gone up. It's really, really seriously good. Right? It's very much focused on what, you know, what can an African government do? Um, um, and I just want to end with the point, what I think African governments should be cautious of doing. And that is they should be cautious of imitating the European shutdowns. Because even Europe is now realizing, oh my goodness, inadvertently, we've risked uh, doing a lot of damage to our economies with these shutdowns. You just can't literally shut down a modern economy. It's too interconnected. Um, and so many people depend on it for their livelihoods. Um, in Africa, um, most people are so close to the edge of, uh, of poverty and hunger um, that they need a continuous flow of income which comes from a continuous flow of economic activity. And so it's really pretty, pretty dangerous, I think, to, to sort of try and shut the economy down. Um, but on that note, let me hand back to, to Jonathan. Great. Thanks very much. Paul. Well, let's sort of uh, move uh, now into a, a sort of a panel discussion involving everyone. Uh, and to help us do that, Manoush, I'd like to come first to you um, and uh, really to ask you a question about the supply side of this international response. You've held senior positions uh, in both the bank, World Bank and the IMF. And I wonder if you could say something about what you think the, the sort of key drivers need to be if we're going to see an international response of the magnitude that Paul and others have talked about? It's interesting. I think in this, at this moment for this crisis, we're actually very well endowed with instruments to provide an international response. So often in other crises, you've been looking for what's the delivery mechanism? How do we, you know, how do we cope? But actually in this case, we have very well-established mechanisms for dealing with debt relief and supporting a fiscal response. You know, we have the fund, we have the multilateral development banks, and we have a well-structured process, and, and Gozi knows it better than anyone, about how to do debt relief. Uh, so we have a delivery mechanism. And on the health side, I think as, uh, as President Sirleaf said, the Global Fund and Gavi are there and have shown that they can effectively respond. I think the other thing that's very interesting at the moment is that most countries in Africa now have well-established cash transfer schemes through mobile banking that can get small amounts of cash to the poorest households very efficiently with huge potential benefits in terms of nutrition and household well-being. And I think, as, as Paul said, we need an income and a cash injection. And we actually have a mechanism in place now that works pretty well to be able to get that cash injection with very low administrative costs to the very poorest people to make sure that they don't get pushed over the economic edge. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Manoush. Um, Gozi, I wonder if I could come back uh, to you. Um, you're one of four special envoys, which President Ramaphosa has appointed to, um, to try to spearhead this, the support for, for Africa. And I wonder if you could just tell us, uh, uh, President Sirleaf mentioned that she thought one of the critical features was getting a key leader on board. Um, 
I think we all recognize some of the challenges of that in the current period. Uh, I wonder if you could say something about, you know, just building on what Manusha said. So where in terms of leadership uh, uh, do you think uh, we can turn in terms of generating the international response? Thank you. Well, first I want to talk about leadership within Africa, because before you turn to people to assist you, you must have assisted yourself. And I'm, I'm really proud to say that I think the leadership has been there on the continent <clears throat> in order to try and pull out all stops for what we can do for ourselves. And I'll just mention a few things. Um, you know, Paul has mentioned the issue of lockdowns and whether they're appropriate or not. And I agree with a lot of what he says. But in the beginning, I think presidents and prime ministers responded with the lockdowns. These lockdowns, I think you need a shock effect because this is a pandemic. This is, this is a deadly disease that spreads very fast. So in order to get people to change their behavior, you need to do something shocking that shows it's not business as usual. So I think that in the beginning, that response of lockdown, we've all got to go in, would be appropriate. The issue now becomes what Paul has raised. How long do you do this, given the structural characteristics? So they did that, a lot of, and you know, it's not easy politically to do that and ask people work in the informal sector to you know, not go to work and not come out for a period of time. So this is something they now need to begin to unfold. But I think that was a brave political decision. Many of them have taken fiscal, so social distancing, all that, uh, you know, washing, hand washing, these simple measures. Although I must tell you that in many of our crowded urban communities, water is a problem. You know, if you don't have water, then you can't even talk about washing your hand if you don't have proper hygiene. So one of the things I think, you know, some of us who are shouting our governments can do with immediate effect is make water, clean water available in many of these communities, both urban and rural. But, you know, the governments also responded with fiscal policies to the extent they could. You know, they waived taxes, they delayed payments, uh, you know, they, they, they put out credit lines to help SMEs, central banks, you know, provided some liquidity. Um, and all in all, we calculated, if you look at the, the response, the, there's a fiscal response about 0.8% of GDP. This is tiny because these countries don't have any fiscal, fiscal space. They are dealing with debt service. You know, the debt to GDP ratio on the continent is, is getting to moving towards the 60% range. You look at debt service to revenue, in some, it, it's upwards of 20% to a third in, in several countries. And this means this is a chokehold where they don't have the fiscal space to be able to, to, to respond. So just look at the issue of 0.8% of GDP compared to an average of 8 to 10% of GDP for developed countries and 20% in Japan. You know, in the developed countries, I say I have to throw out my economics textbook because some of the measures, you know, were not things we even learned in school. It's like all it takes, anything it takes. So if that is the case for the developed countries, we also have to look at what do you have to do? So I've mentioned that the developing countries, our countries, our African countries have really done quite a lot. They've now moved to use the resources they have to purchase the equipment 
um, let me mention two things. Afrex Zimbank, some of the, the regional institutions, Afrex Zimbank has put forward $3 billion to enable private sector to help purchase immediate equipment for, for the continent. The African Development Bank raised a $3 billion COVID-19 bond and is making $10 billion available uh, for the continent. So it's just for people to know that Africans are not coming and saying, you know, we want help. Our leaders have shown the kind of leadership, whether it's the AU chair, President Cyril Ramaphosa, the chair of the AU commission, uh, Mr. Musafaki, and all our presidents, they've really acted. But it's not enough. It's not enough. I think Paul signaled that. So the issue is, where is the international community? You know, he said something I really like. You know, um, you know Africa suffered a huge income loss. The economic effects of this happened first before the health effects. I mean, we felt the fall in commodity prices when China began to, to have its uh, health, uh, uh, its pandemic, and then Europe joined and the US. So we were hit with a huge economic crisis. And then the health crisis came on top. So the international community needs to step up. And that's the work that the envoys working with our leaders is saying, where is the leadership internationally? Well, well you know, we need it. And um, I'm happy to say that we've seen some opening. The G20 has um, agreed essentially we are asking for two or three things. One is a debt standstill for two years. Why a debt standstill? It will release about $44 billion in resources to our countries per year. That's money in your pocket right away. That doesn't have to be disbursed by anybody that you can use. During that two years, we can now look at the debt sustainability of our countries and try to figure it out. So, and we're asking for it for commercial debt, bilateral debt, and multilateral. Now we'll have to take each one by one and see what's the feasibility and how can it get done. So finally, we, I mentioned before that we've reckoned that we also need $200 billion, about 10% of our GDP, in order for us to recover from this crisis. So that's what we want the international community to step up and, and, and begin to look at how we get there. Thanks very much. President Sirleaf, I wonder if I could come back to you. One of the things uh, that uh, struck me in your remarks was how you talked not only about the need for partnerships, but the need both for capacity and for a coordinated response domestically. And of course, the, the way we've been talking about the crisis, it's obvious it spans the political, the medical, uh, you know, the, the uh, sort of technical uh, uh, aspects of, of government. And I wonder if you could say something about from the Ebola crisis particularly, of how governments can generate that kind of effective coordinate, coordinated response? Uh, let, let me first take off from uh, something that Ngozi mentioned. She talked about the water and sanitation system. That's a major means of prevention and I must say, there's not enough done. Look in every poor country, particularly fragile ones, you'll find that the water and sanitation systems are most inadequate. In rural areas, they don't exist. 
people are still getting water from streams and from rivers and from creeks. So unless we can do that, you can add nutrition to that. That may be a bit more difficult to get people to change their, their eating habits and all of that. But I think one needs to do that. Uh, also, when it comes to the leadership, again, I say, and Gosi has mentioned that, that uh, the African leadership have responded. They have tried to have a very unified and consistent approach to being able to, to make sure that we all are doing the same thing and moving in harmony with each other, applying the measures. In some countries, there have to be differences. In Liberia, our communities are just multiple. Our capital cities hold over 40% of the total population of the country. Crowded communities. Yes, we have lockdown, but I think there's been some effort to try to modify the lockdown. In our cases, uh, in Liberia, some people are uh, allowed a certain amount of time with few people to go into the markets and then close the markets after, shut down completely after 3 p.m. So all of those measures have to be taken by leaders who are fully engaged and fully part of guiding the effort that needs to be made. I want to come back to international cooperation. We hear a lot of big numbers. We hear large amounts that are being talked about. I'm sorry, they are not reaching all the countries. And with, this is what realizing that countries themselves have prime responsibilities. They must ensure that they have their budget systems and are doing proper allocation of their own resources, accountability and transparency in their systems that's all required. But at the same time, on the basis of the Ebola experience and with COVID-19 today, if there's not a scaling up of support to build the healthcare systems, to be able to train the community health workers, 70% of which are women, we will always face the threat of again another crisis, another epidemic, because we haven't done that. I want to use some Liberian examples, some numbers. Uh, uh, today, as a response to COVID-19, an amount of close to 20 million has been given to Liberia to be able to respond. And it's uh, a certain amount of it is grant, 7.5 million, 3.75 uh, used as either credit, a certain amount uh, used for the, uh, you know, for the um, for ongoing programs, a total of 19.5 or $20 million. I want to compare that to the amounts that are being talked about. World Bank, 14 billion, 14 billion for COVID-19 fast track. 160 billion for poor countries. Please tell me the formula for allocation. I'm talking about fragile states that already have not recovered from Ebola 
Today, the economists, once reaching 7.5% average for consistently four years, is now only 1.0%. Today, is still just getting for, and, and this is all allocated to a myriad of activities, you know, 300,000 here, 500,000 there, uh, 1 million here. Come on. If, yes, like Liberia has responsibility and we're going to continue to do the best we can to improve our fiscal system, to do more that we can to be able to allocate more resources to the health system, you know, to train people to work with our partners. But if we're not going to recognize the specificities of certain countries that are fragile, that are poor, and have never built the system for response, will always will they will always be a threat, and they will become a threat to the world. Great, thanks very much. I think we should open now to to the general question answers. We've had a, a lot of questions coming in, and I wanted in particular to begin by saying that it's a, a great pleasure to welcome uh, viewers who are tuning in from around the world. Uh, we have people who have joined from Panama, Nigeria, Togo, Peru, Singapore, Germany, Pakistan, and Hong Kong, among many others. So uh, great to have all of you with us for this, for this conversation. Um, let me start um, with a question from Robert Yates, who's here at Chatham House, and he's asked, given the importance of ensuring universal access to health services to respond to COVID-19, do you agree with uh, WHO's new policy line uh, that government should remove all health service user fees in the public sector? So it's a question, is this the right direction in terms of uh, providing universal access to remove all user fees at this point? Would uh, Ngozi, would you like to come in on that? Yeah, well, yes, uh, I'll comment. I, I think at this point in time, we're talking of a, something that is really an existential threat um, um, to all of us. Um, and so I think this is the time to take emergency measures. So I would say that in the short term, we should not really be looking at people paying uh, uh, for service and that it should be free. People should be able to get tested, to get treated. Um, yes, so I do agree with that. We can then talk about later on, you know, as we strengthen the health system, what is free, what isn't free. But at this point in time, the objective should be to get everyone who is who has the disease or who thinks they have it to have the proper testing and the proper management. And I think in many of our countries, this is actually occurring. I, I don't think that you, you find um, many places where they're asking people to, to pay. Countries have actually designated isolation centers, quarantine centers, where people are, are taken uh, by the CDC. I must commend the Africa CDC and the CDCs in our countries because they are doing a, a, a good job with very little. Uh, so, yes, I do agree. Okay. Let me go ahead to the second question, and, and if anyone wants to comment on earlier's, but I think particularly President Sirleaf, I think this, uh, uh, and also uh, Ingozi, would be uh, a relevant question for you. It's from uh, Ir Jonathan Ichava, who's an LSC alumna uh, from Lagos, and, and she's asking, what role can civil society play in pushing for better solutions 
in societies like Nigeria, where the leadership is not as engaged, honest, and exemplary, and where people have waning confidence in the political leadership. So without asking you, if you to comment on the political leadership assumption that she's, comments that she's made, I wonder if you could address this important uh, point about civil society. But first, uh, President Sirleaf, could you say something? Civil society can play an important role. In fact, I believe it, they have played an important role uh, in the Ebola circumstances. Uh, the media is important for proper reporting on results, proper identification of areas for which there's concern. Uh, there are many civil society organizations, women groups have been very, very uh, vital in supporting nurses, uh, in supporting healthcare workers by being able to work with them and provide some basic training to them. So I believe we can do more to strengthen civil society to be able to continue to play a very important role, particularly in those areas where uh, perhaps there are a lot of gaps in the leadership throughout the society. Ngozi, would you like to add anything? Yes, just to complement uh, what Her Excellency has said. I think civil society is vital in, in two or three, three areas. I think in the area of communication, um, it's, it's really outreach uh, to, to the population. Their role is really critical. And I'm proud to be an advisor actually to a civil society organization in Nigeria, ANAP, uh, founded by one of our businessmen at Tedo Peter side that is trying to disseminate information because we simply need to educate people. There's a lot of misinformation, uh, deliberate and not deliberate about COVID. So that is one role. I think another role is, um, is um, advocacy uh, for what people need. People in the informal sector, you know, they don't have a voice. Who is going to be their voice? Civil society can help us do that. And I think the third one is very practical. As you're deploying your social safety net, not every country has what it takes to get food and, and resources to people. I think civil society is critical here. If they, they can deploy to be able to help get food to people, uh, to get supplies and, and, and what they need. And finally, I would like the, the, our civil society to be very active in this vaccine. Uh, when the vaccines eventually come, we, voices should be raised and heard that the equity and access objectives uh, should be respected. So I think those are some critical roles. Great. Thanks very much. Um, we had a question from Ivan Indege, who's a spokesperson from the International Organization for Migration. Um, she asked, do lockdowns, the lockdowns in Africa work, or will they do more harm than good? I think we've sort of covered that already in terms of both, Paul, your, your comments on the economic side and Ngozi, the point you made about the importance of, of strong action, of, of sort of shock uh, therapy. But I wonder, Paul, if you could say, um, okay, if you're not going to do, or at least not going to have an extended blanket lockdown, what are the alternatives? Yeah, I think um, I'm, one of the kind of rather dangerous effects of, of urban lockdown in India um, was you've got a flight to the rural areas um, and that migration 
from the cities to the countryside was in danger of actually spreading the, the disease because the, the cities were the epicenters of the disease. And if, so inadvertently, that, that, um, that lockdown of people who desperately needed to be able to work in order to, to survive, that sort of spread the, um, the thing. So um, what else can you do to, to, to keep people from being um, precarious? Um, first, let me return to that concept of, of radical uncertainty where you don't know what to do, but people are really anxious for good reason. Um, uh, I think, as President Johnson Sirleaf said, I mean, people are, people are scared. I mean, they, need, they need some reassurance. And that's why um, the phrase, whatever it takes, uh, is actually the right phrase for this. It became, you know, it was pioneered by Draghi, uh, for a very different purpose in Europe to save the euro, and it worked. Um, and it's the right phrase for politicians now to say it because implicitly, whatever it takes, says we don't know what to do, which they don't. That's a very important admission. But it's also the, the commitment, it's the political commitment, we're going to do enough uh, to reassure you. So <laughs> what would be the equivalent, <coughs> what would the equivalent in Africa um, and I think it's, um, here's a suggestion, what, what even, even the poorest countries that don't have good um, mechanisms for uh, getting support to the poorest people, um, they do have mobile phone networks uh, and payment systems that run through those mobile phone networks. And in a lot of countries, those mobile phone payment networks could be used to get small amounts of money to very many people, maybe you could possibly target the areas where we know that people are going to be very poor and vulnerable, um, and a commitment to say, for the next three months, very small but regular payments will be made. Um, I would personally favor African governments making that commitment to the poorest people in the poorest regions in the society. Then saying to the international community, here's the bill. You want to pay it or not? Um, and I think that would put um, some good psychological pressure on international leaders. Um, because in practice, if this money is well used to support to give some certain element of security to the poorest people over this uh, next 12 weeks of crisis, um, it's going to be uh, pretty well impossible, I think, for Western leaders to, to, to say no. But what we do know is that Western leaders so far have been really slow. And so um, they'll eventually, I think the chances are they'll eventually come round, but eventually it's too late. Um, the uh, precarious situation is already here. And so um, rather than just wait on money coming in, um, I think there's a case for actually preemptively making some commitment, starting some very simple payment system, uh, and then uh, presenting the bill.
that might sound a bit uh, radical, but uh, I think it's important to put the international leaders on the, on the moral spot. Thanks, uh, Paul. Let me now uh, ask a question which actually has been voted one of the two top questions on Zoom. It's from Natalie Rothwell. And she asks, what do you see as the implications for provision of affordable, adequate and safe housing in Africa during this pandemic? And what does the pandemic mean for shack or slum dwellers, and in particular for women and girls within the low-income settlements? Who would like to start off? President Sirleaf. The implications are enormous. We have thousands and thousands of people without adequate housing in poor communities. Multiple persons occupy a small space because that's all they have. If they are required not to go about to the markets or to the shops to be able to get their daily requirement, either by selling to earn the income for the day's food or by earning to buy for the day's food, it means that you're going to subject a whole lot of them to very, very serious suffering. Um, housing is a big shortcoming in most poor countries, certainly in my own. And because of that, because they can do makeshift arrangements from families who have been able to move to the cities and have better living conditions. You also have movement to the cities. And today our cities are filled and the communities are just filled with people, many of whom homeless, jobless. Yes, the leaders of Africa have prime responsibility for that. And there is much being done to do it within uh, insufficient resources. The COVID-19, as was in the case of Ebola, Ebola was a bit better because COVID-19 is so widespread, unknown, and so easily transferable that um, we can expect that uh, in the midst of poor housing, that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to go hungry and a lot of people will be affected. Thank you. Uh, Paul, you've done a lot of work on cities. I just wondered if you wanted to add any sort of quick comments to President Sirleaf's. Yeah, I think the, um, the housing situation um, very obviously needs to be addressed. Um, it's... Um, uh, uh, but there's so many missing pieces. It's not something that could be done instantly. You know, you start with um, the need to um, uh, to get uh, proper rights to land until they can't uh, build on that uh, land. So that's the start. Then you need um, uh, the uh, enough secure collateral to be able to borrow to 
get a mortgage to build something um, and you need um, uh, so you need a, a, a financial sector savings and loans building societies that are properly integrated uh, into uh, people's housing plans and ambitions and that's also missing so it is land rights it's finance simple finance you know the the cooperative system uh, for for finance of housing create, create was created in Britain um, 200 years ago uh, to provide the the basic housing for the newly growing uh, industrial cities and that was a cooperative movement Halif a little town called Halifax founded what became the biggest bank in Britain um, and that was ordinary families pooling together so there's very simple structures the the present banking structure in Africa is kind of completely inappropriate. It's got a cost base which can't cope uh, with mass housing. Great. Okay. Jonathan, oh, sorry. Yes. May, I, may I add just mm. quickly something to that? I just want to say that I see this a bit differently. I think that this housing issue, uh, the way that uh, President Johnson Sirleaf articulated it, it's it, it, as a big need. It can also be seen as a huge opportunity of this pandemic. It's very obvious that this is not going to be the only pandemic. We should prepare for future pandemics. And if we don't learn the lessons now, then so be it for us. One of those is that we have to deal with the issue of crowding and uh, in, in some of our cities. Um, and introducing affordable housing is one big opportunity to do this. So the world, the countries and the world, they have a chance to stand back because I, I respect all the constraints that Paul has mentioned. But look, we can stand back and say, yeah, you know, there are all these issues. Or we can say this is a huge opportunity to house. It's not an insoluble problem. We house these people who are crowded together and we can do it in a climate-friendly and green way. You know, as we recover from this crisis, we have to build back better. With low carbon emissions. So we, can, we could actually strike two objectives. Build housing that is climate-friendly and house people in a reasonable fashion so that we do not have this spread of pandemic so fast. And I think the world should look at it and put the resources behind it. Thanks very much, Ngozi. I think we have time probably for just uh, one more question, maybe two if we're lucky, and then uh, just some final comments. Uh, another very popular question is from Ane Arnopoulos, and uh, she asks, what are your thoughts about China's involvement in Africa during this pandemic? And I wonder, Manush, if I could first come to you and then uh, invite others to add anything. Well, I think um, it's interesting because the ties between China and Africa are obviously have grown enormously. And yet the transmission of the virus via China is not obviously very high so far. I think at this point, the biggest issue I'd point to in terms of China is its role in debt relief. Uh, China is now a major creditor to the continent. I think it's very good news that China signed on to the G20 commitment on the moratorium on bilateral official bilateral debt payments. 
And I think it's key, and this is the first time that China has agreed to be part of a multilateral debt relief arrangement. And it's vital that we keep China in the fold of having as part of a transparent, multilateral, generous debt relief package. It is the, it is the most effective mechanism for getting resources into the hands of African governments quickly to be able to provide support to the most vulnerable populations and to have an urgent health response. It is much quicker than anything else. And China has a key role to play in making that happen. Uh, I wish we would stop the blame game and see this as a global threat, a global problem that requires global cooperation, global coordination, and global effort using the expertise and resources of all countries that have those capacity and working with others to see how we can improve their capacities and improve systems worldwide for a better world. Um, perhaps I can, I, can, I can add a little bit to that. Yes, I, I think I, I want to subscribe uh, to both what Her Excellency said and what Minouche said in a way. I think this is the time for us to see how we can come together. Um, the other day, my granddaughter sang a song with her friends by the Beatles, Come Together. And they did, <laughs> <laughs> they did it because they said, you know, she said, Gran, you know, the world needs to come together now. She's eight years old. This is there affecting everybody. So I think we should move and uh, embrace in that spirit that um, later on we can try and find out who did what to whom when, but now the world just needs to fight this as a global community. So we need to, uh, to see what we can do with each, each country, each constituency. But I do believe that China um, has played quite a positive role on the continent. When you play a positive role and you take a big posture as a bilateral, that means that you also have big responsibilities. And I, I want to say that what Minouche said in terms of debt relief is, is really important. China is the biggest bilateral creditor of the continent. Uh, we, we, bilateral uh, debt service for us is about 13.6 billion or so per year. And most of that is China. So without China's leadership in this area, we'll not be able to get the two-year standstill that we need. So we do need them to step up uh, in that regard. And they can, you know, and to, to take the lead um, um, to work with us. Uh, of course, you know, we've also asked them for a quota for equipment. A lot of the things being manufactured for test kits and ventilators and are being done in China. And there's a bidding war going on. So right now, China can be very helpful. We can't compete in this environment. They need to reserve a quota for us. They've given a lot of donations, but we need a quota. Eventually, we on the continent should be manufacturing a lot of these things for ourselves. And I'm happy to say that many of our universities, our manufacturers, even in ordinary people, women and girls are making masks, you know, making a PPE. So we should do it for ourselves. But for now, China should reserve a quota for the continent. That's what we're asking for. 
Yeah, I think um, two points. One is that it's a vital matter that China becomes properly integrated into the international debt structure, creditor structure, um, which, as Manu said, until now it hasn't been. And this G20 is, the, is kind of the first step. Um, and it really is important that, it, that, it, that we rebuild the system of international cooperation uh, on, uh, on, on dealing with debt. Um, uh, it's uh, been a bigger symmetry between the responsibilities of debtors and creditors, and there's been a, a, a decrease in the capacity of, 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 for, for coordination uh, of, debt, uh, of debt restructuring. So that's really important. And then that final point about the, the supply chains. I think everybody's learned uh, that it's not a good idea to be over-dependent um, on, uh, on any one country. And China's um, been such a huge exporter that we've, the whole world has got excessively dependent upon um, single sourcing from China. Um, and, th and that will have to change. Great. Well, we're almost out of time. So um, I, I'd like to take just a couple of uh, comments myself and then come to each of the four of you for uh, just a single parting shot. So just a single uh, thing that you think uh, is most important about particularly the international uh, community's response, but perhaps just more generally about the COVID response uh, from your perspective. Um, let me just say, from my perspective, first, I just want to thank all of you and to the, the very many people who've uh, joined us for this first online event. We're delighted to, uh, to be part of this conversation, uh, which is taking place uh, on all parts, all parts of the globe uh, today. Uh, I think a number of, of very important points have come out of our discussion today. I won't attempt to summarize them all, but I guess I'm particularly struck by uh, the examples we've heard of, of African leadership and, and, and how we're seeing very strong uh, responses across Africa um, about, secondly, about how important it is for these responses to be localized, to be respectful and, and, and take into account the really very distinct features of each local context and how there's no one size fits all. How to make that happen uh, governments need data, they need transparency, they need accountability. So there's a, a burden, a challenge for governments, but there's also a challenge for those like the IGC who want to be supporting governments uh, through all of this process. It's a process uh, which will require all hands on deck. So there's an important role for the civil society. There's an important role for, uh, for all levels of government. There's an important role for local communities and and, and for individuals. And there's a very important role, of course, for the international community as well. Let me uh, finish now, but I'll call first on Paul, then Manoush, uh, then uh, Ngozi, and then President Sirleaf. So Paul, if you could just give us a sort of single sort of parting shot in terms of... Yeah, learn, learn as you go. Um, Africa already demonstrated that it learned from the recent experience of Ebola. And that's why it's made a much better fist of the response than Europe has, because Europe's learned nothing about these viruses um, since uh, Spanish flu. So learn as you go, and that applies both to governments and to the larger community. Uh, and that's where the transparency and sharing comes in. Um, the government needs the uh, cooperation and trust of the entire community, and so share that learning. Great. Uh, Minush. 
We haven't talked very much about demography. And I have to say, demography is one area where Africa may have a huge advantage in this crisis because it is the youngest continent in the world. And the evidence is clear that age is a huge factor in this virus. It's why Europe has suffered so much because it is an old continent. Uh, so I'm hoping that demography works in Africa's favor and that the health impact will be less than other parts of the world. But having said that, this is a triple whammy for Africa. It's a health crisis, it's a global demand crisis, and it's a commodity price shock crisis. And those latter two will still be there, even if the health impact is less than elsewhere. And the, so the need for an economic support response will be, will be very large. Thanks. Ngozi. Thank you. I want to talk about whatever it takes. Um, whatever it takes has governed the response of the developed world to this crisis. On the African continent, we've really taken steps and we have to depend on ourselves as much as possible. I think this is a big lesson that comes from this crisis. Second, but we know that that is not enough. And this was an exogenous shock that hit the continent, a pandemic that requires a global response. So even though we've done everything and we're doing what we can, it needs additional help. We are grateful to the G20, the IMF, the World Bank, and all the other international institutions for taking the first steps. But we cannot have a whatever it takes governing one part of the world and we, a, we don't know what it takes governing another part. I think since we're in a pandemic situation, we should look at whatever it takes to get us out of this very deep existential crisis that we're in for the world. Thanks very much, Ngozi. President Sirleaf, uh, last word to you. There's too much inequities for too long in the world. It's time for global action to address this. There's a threat to long-standing values that have promoted democracy and public service and participation of the people in decision that affect their lives and their livelihoods. We need to see how systems can go back to reclaiming some of those values. Global leadership, enjoy global respect and global leaders must now also assume global responsibilities. And for ourselves in Africa, we must work through all of our leaders who have continued to do what they can to support the kind of economic and political reforms that we now enjoy to ensure that they have a more coordinated and unified approach in our action and in our appeal to the world. Those are my last words. 
Thank you very much. And a very, a very nice uh, note uh, on which to end uh, this event. Um, let me thank, first of all, our audience, uh, all of you uh, who joined us on Zoom and through Facebook. We're really delighted to have you join us for, for this conversation. It's a conversation that will continue. Both IGC and the LSC generally are going to be uh, sponsoring a series of events now on the COVID crisis, and we'd love to have you uh, join us uh, for those. And finally, let me thank our, our panelists. Uh, we feel incredibly lucky to have had all of you uh, willing to, to make time today uh, to join us for this. Um, uh, I think I speak for everyone that we've learned a lot uh, from this and very much appreciate your sharing your insights with us. So thanks very much to all of you.